Welcome to Planttopia. I'm your host, David Godori, and I'm a plant pathologist at Cornell University. Any listeners who have never met a real live plant pathologist can be forgiven. We are a very low visibility, but very high impact profession. We protect the world's food supply from disease-causing fungi, bacteria, viruses, and nematodes, all of which want to eat your lunch. This time on Planttopia. We all tend to take seeds for granted. We know we can buy seeds, we know farmers buy seeds, but we often don't think about where that seed comes from. How is it produced? Who produces it? Where is it produced? And how much effort it takes to have seed available and to be able to buy seed any time of year and plant whatever it is we like. Um, there's so much that goes into it and I just think it's, it's a, unfortunately a well-kept secret and something we should be sharing more widely. It is said that mighty oaks from little acorns grow. Today, we'll learn just how that proverb applies to modern production of just about every plant we want to grow in an episode that connects land use, real estate, genetic diversity, Popeye the sailor, and food security. Today on Plantopia, we'll look at just how our modern world depends upon something as seemingly simple as a seed. The land prices are pretty high um, and there's a lot of pressure to develop this land for uses other than agriculture. And so they actually have laws in place to protect valuable land for farming and limit the development to areas, say, on rocky slopes or the hills where you wouldn't want to grow these crops anyway. But if that kind of protection of this land goes away, um, we'll be in big trouble. My name is Lindsay Dutoy and I'm with Washington State University. So you are a seed pathologist, uh, and of all of the specialties that you could uh, get into as a plant pathologist, as a plant doctor, what made you pick seed pathology? Well, I think seed pathology picked me. <laughs> um, I had no background in seed pathology. I obviously trained as a plant pathologist through my uh, both uh, all three degrees. Undergraduate was a major in plant pathology back in South Africa. Uh, masters and PhDs were majors in plant pathology. And frankly, in all those courses I took and all that training, seeds was kind of sort of lurking in the background because all the crops I worked with grew from seeds. I didn't work vegetatively propagated plants. But um, when this job that I'm in now came about, um, I really did a double take when I saw the description because we all tend to take seeds for granted. We know we can buy seeds, we know farmers buy seeds, but we often don't think about where that seed comes from. How is it produced? Who produces it? Where is it produced? We tend to just assume it's there. And so when I got into this job, the thing that terrified me was the fact that I had no background in seed pathology and that I really had no understanding about how seed production takes place. Some crops, it's more obvious. You know, we buy corn, we buy, we're buying the seed in essence. So we tend to think that the seeds grow in the same way we grow the corn crops that we, where we eat the seed. But for other crops like carrots or spinach or onions, we never think about what does it take to make a carrot crop become a seed crop? And where is that seed grown and how is it grown? So it was a really steep learning curve and I jumped into the job knowing that this could be absolutely fascinating and really, really important because so much of what the food we grow comes from seed and yet so few of us understand 
where seed is, how it's grown and so on. So seed pathology fell into my lap and kind of enticed me into this career that I had no background in prior to starting this job 20 years ago. Plant pathology is a, a very small but very high impact profession. And I'm by training, I'm an epidemiologist. And, and now thanks to COVID-19 and, and Anthony Fauci, everybody knows what an epidemiologist is and what they do. Uh, I do that at the level of plants and crops yep. and uh, a local, regional and national scale. What does a seed pathologist do? In a, in a way, you're kind of like the pediatrician of yep. plant pathology, <laughs> working with the, the babies. Yeah, that's a really good comment, David. And we know so many crops start from planting seed. And so a big part of my job is to work with the seed growers that produce that seed to figure out, are there any pathogens that they have to deal with in the areas where they're growing these seed crops that can then get onto the seed? So how do we help these growers prevent the seed from becoming infected? So they can sell healthy seed because that seed goes all over the world. It goes all over the country of the United States and it goes to many other countries in the world. And how do we help them produce seed that is clean and healthy? Or if they do get, end up with a pathogen in their crop and it is one of those pathogens that can get on the seed, are there ways that they can treat that seed, whether it be chemicals or whether it be physical types of treatments? So we help the growers figure out ways to treat seed. We also help them to figure out what's the risk if this pathogen is on the seed. If, is the seed going to an area where this disease already exists? This pathogen is well established and the seed is not going to be contributing much of any significant to the inoculum? Or is it a really important pathogen when it's on seed and could result in these epidemics, kind of like the COVID-19? You don't want to introduce a source of inoculum to an area where the pathogen doesn't exist. So a big part of what we do as a seed pathologist is help assess risk and help growers develop management programs to reduce that risk. So it seems to some degree that seed pathology has a little bit of, uh, of selling real estate in it. It's about location, <laughs> location, location. I can't help but notice that the Pacific Northwest, or rather the, the the desert part of the northwestern United States, produces a lot of seed for many different crops. Yes, absolutely, and this is this is why um, I my job exists here in in um, Washington State. Many of these pathogens that can be carried on seed are favored by certain environmental conditions. They tend to be favored by wet conditions. They favored by you know, fungi and bacteria are often splash dispersed um, or they need periods of, of where the canopy or the leaves are wet so that they can, the spores or the bacteria when they land on the cell can grow and invade the, the plant tissue. So wet conditions are very favorable for most of these plant pathogens. And that's just, this is the biggest reason that seed production takes place in drier climates. So you don't see a huge seed industry in the Midwest or the East Coast because you have a lot of humidity and you have these big fronts and these rainstorms that come through. We're a semi-arid area in the, in the Western U.S. and that's perfect for seed production as long as you have enough water to irrigate your crop so that you have enough to grow the crop. But ideally, when that seed is forming and, and it's maturing on the crop, you don't want that seed to get wet. And that's why so much seed production in the world takes place in the, in the U.S., at least takes place in the western uh, part of the U.S. And in other areas of the world, it's in these similar types of semi-arid regions. 
But it gets kind of more complicated than that, David, because some of these crops that I work with, I work primarily in vegetable seed production. Some of them are what we call biennials. It takes two years to get it to go from a vegetative crop like carrots. You you normally grow roots. How do you get it to make seed? You have to take it through a winter to make it shift from vegetative growth to reproductive growth where it's flowering and you have to have flowers to have seed. So you have to have a region where it's cold enough to make that plant flower, but not so cold that it kills the plant. And so we have to have these regions uh, where it's cold enough to make things go through that shift in vegetative to reproductive growth. We call that bolting, so to make bolting occur for biennial species. And that central Washington is an ideal area for that. It's dry, which means we don't have as much disease pressure. The winters are cold enough for the carrots and the onions, those biennial species, to vernalize and bolt and make flowers the next year and produce seed. But if you look at some of the annual crops, for example, spinach, spinach will flower not in response to a cold period, but in response to long summer days. So you have to grow spinach seed crops in areas where the day length in the summer is very long. So you cannot grow spinach seed in California or Texas or Florida. You wouldn't want to grow it in Texas or Florida because it's more humid, but you cannot grow it in California where it's dry because the day length is too short. You have to grow some of these species in high latitude areas of the world where a long day length would trigger flowering. So now you get even more specific in the climate. You have to have dry summers because you don't want that seed wet when it's maturing and you have to have long summer days. So in the U.S., the only area where you can grow spinach seed is western Washington and western Oregon because we have long summers, um, long summer day length. We also have dry summer months and we have cool temperatures because spinach doesn't tolerate heat very well. So there's only about six places in the world where you can grow spinach seed. And in the U.S., it's western Washington and western Oregon. So there's a really uh, narrow description of climatic conditions that you have to have to grow some of these species. It sounds like the areas of the world where you can produce seed for some of our most important crops are a very precious resource. Is it competing with other uses of that very valuable uh, land? Absolutely. Um, you think about, I don't know if you've been out to Western Washington, David, but it's kind of the, in Washington state, three quarters of our population lives on the west side of the state. So we have this big metropolitan that extends from Seattle up north and down and south along the I-5 corridor. And most of the seed production is along that I-5 corridor. And land becomes really, really valuable when it's, um, there's a lot of folks wanting to develop it and build houses and build, uh, you know, warehouses and so on. And so for agriculture to be viable economically, they have to be able to compete with the price of land. And we're, we're only a, in Skagit Valley, where I live and where a tremendous amount of seed production occurs, we're only an hour's drive from Seattle. So land prices are pretty high, um, and there's a lot of pressure to develop this land for uses other than agriculture. So we're lucky in our area um, that we have county commissioners, we have local government, county government and state government that is aware of the value of this region for seed production. And so they actually have laws in place to protect valuable land for farming and limit the development to areas, say, on rocky slopes or the hills where you wouldn't want to grow these crops anyway. But if that kind of protection of this land goes away, uh, we'll be in big trouble. Seeds also have uh, an irreplaceable value as a way of storing 
uh, genetic diversity of major crops. And, and you've got some really uh, cool places around the world where this goes on. One that comes to mind is the Global Seed Vault in Svalbard, yeah. which is about 800 miles south of the North Pole. And it's a, just an amazing facility. That's for sure. Uh, it, and it's really, really important. Um, you know, we tend to think maybe it's a doomsday thing and it's, you know, people who are think the world's going to end who are doing this. But there have been some very real examples already of where Svalbard has um, turned out to be an essential reservoir of seeds from areas that have had disasters happen, whether they be wars, um, you know, like the war in Syria, where some of the um, germplasm or some of the centers of origin of some of these species are being devastated by either natural disaster or something like a war. And seed, res seed uh, resources in those areas have um, been decimated. And if they was if some of that seed was not backed up in a place like Svalbard, um, there's a tremendous amount of genetic diversity that w would have been lost. Um, there have been natural disasters as well as man-made disasters that have threatened some of these very, very important sources of genetic diversity in plant material. Um, and places like Svalbard have uh, turned out to be more valuable than anticipated, which is a good thing. That's right. And we, we don't have to look back too far uh, to find out just how important those sources of resistance, even if they're ancient, uh, can can be. Um, I'm thinking of uh, the UG99 crisis in uh, wheat production, where the existing germplasm for breeding the world's wheat supply was challenged by the uh, the development of a race which could, could overcome virtually all of the known sources of resistance that were available. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we, ha we have another recent example, David. I work a lot with spinach, as you may have gathered by now. Um, and there's a disease that's very, very problematic in spinach, and that's fusarium wilt. Um, and it's been really difficult to find sources of resistance to this fungus um, that causes fusarium wilt in spinach. And recently, some of the um, breeders in Europe, including um, the curator of the spinach germplasm um, um, collection in the Netherlands, they were able to get funding to go on a collecting trip to the centers of origin of spinach and species related to the spinach that we all tend to not normally eat and they went around and collected some of these wild types um, in areas um, that, around Kazakhstan and um, Armenia and so on um, and were able to bring back some of that material and it turns out that there's some incredible sources of resistance to diseases like fusarium wilt and downy mildew and others that have really improved our ability to breed for resistance to plant pathogens. Um, and that's all happened in the last three to four years, and it's it's had a tremendous impact on spinach breeding globally. So there's a really good example. It was one of the things they noticed in these areas where they were collecting some of these seeds is that some of these areas where these wild types are growing are threatened by development, by expansion of um, where people live and destruction of the natural flora. So it's been valuable to get some of these collections and provide a resource for storing this diversity of genetic material. Have you thought of bringing back uh, perhaps Popeye as a spokesperson for the industry? <laughs> 
Well, if if you go down to Uvalde, Texas, <laughs> um, there's there are two Popeye statues down there in in Texas. And in fact, I was down there last month. Uh, well, in February, um, to meet with the spinach growers in Texas. They are funding one of our graduate students to work on a folia fungal disease with spinach that causes big problems for them. And uh, we stopped and took a photo with the graduate student um, at the statue of Popeye, so that uh, she could share her her, her role model <laughs> for working with spinach. So, yep, Popeye is still the spokesperson for spinach. (laughs) Plantopia is brought to you by the American Phytopathological Society, or APS, to honor the United Nations celebration of 2020 as the International Year of Plant Health. Healthy plants can help us solve world hunger, stabilize the world's climate, protect our forests, and add beauty to our lives. Now, back to the show. I'm dating myself by being old enough to remember Popeye cartoons, but I understand they're still available on certain channels. Yep. <laughs> yep. And I can for, send you some photos of a, of a very large Popeye statue. <laughs> and for, for multiple generations of children of a certain era, uh, spinach became a, a vegetable that uh, was actually popular among children. Yeah, I mean, thankfully, we don't only have uh, canned spinach available anymore. Um, I love baby, I love uh, spinach salads, and I think um, you know it's it's a very interesting development over the last about twenty five years or so. The bagged spinach, the the v- tremendous convenience of bagged spinach, um, has really increased the popularity of spinach as as a crop that people eat, and in fact, it's had a huge impact on seed production because when you grow baby leaf spinach. Um, they want the leaves to grow upright. So the, when they plant spinach for baby leaf production, they plant the, the seed at a population of about three to four million seed per acre. Tremendously dense population of seed. So that when the leaves come up, they, they're really crowded. The spacing is one inch between the rows and one inch in the rows. So you imagine how dense that seed is, as the seedlings are as they come up, which means the leaves stay upright and they can be cut with a sickle bar about an inch above the ground so the leaves never touch the ground again. And those crops are harvested anywhere from 20 to 40 days after planting. So there's a really quick turnaround from planting to harvest at a very, very high population. And this has tremendously increased the the need for spinach seed. And that's increased the need to grow spinach seed crops. And to keep up with that demand has been a big, big issue for um, seed production and for seed companies. It's a great demand, but it means even more land is needed to be able to produce that amount of seed. One acre of a spinach seed crop produces enough seed to plant 10 acres of a baby leaf crop. That's not a big ratio. When you look at something like cabbage, it's about a 1 to 300 ratio for head cabbage versus cabbage seed crop. But for spinach, it's a 1 to 10 ratio. So we need a lot of spinach seed crops to supply the baby leaf spinach market. Right. At that density of planting, it's not really a row crop anymore. It's a lawn. (laughs) Exactly. It's exactly what it is. It's almost a broadcast lawn of spinach, yep. And it's a very quick crop. It's amazing how fast they that crop can be harvested. As the land becomes contracted in the supply available for producing seed for seed crops, um, mm-hmm. and the increased uh, density in certain types of production systems, 
What challenges does that pose for the seed production industry? Because I would think that some of the tactics that apply in managing diseases of other crops, in in particular crop rotation, becomes Mm -hmm. more difficult as the land becomes very valuable and the value of production is very high. Oh, David, you you nailed it there. It's a huge issue and even more complicated when I tell you that some of these species are wind-pollinated or insect-pollinated. So all of the vegetables that I work with are what we call cross-pollinated. The pollen has to move between plants, um, so they're not self-pollinated like um, some other species are, like legumes and and wheat and so on, where they self-pollinate, which means that these seed crops have to be separated spatially. So if you, David, are a farmer growing a spinach seed crop, and I'm your neighbor, and I want to grow a spinach seed crop, I cannot grow a spinach seed crop of a different variety than you. I have to have the same variety as you if we want to grow crops next to each other, because the pollen is going to blow in the wind, and if the wrong pollen blows across to your crop, your seed will be the wrong genetics. So you, are, you as a farmer and the seed company that, that takes that seed from you will not be able to sell that seed because it'll have the wrong genetics. So all of these seed crops that are cross-pollinated have to be separated from each other by a certain minimum standard. So that adds to the amount of land you need to be able to raise all these seed crops for cross-pollinated species. And then you add the pressure from diseases. So I mentioned to you fusarium wilt is a disease that's a big problem for our spinach seed producers. And it does very well in our soils, unfortunately, in this area where we can grow spinach seed crops. To the point that our growers have to stay out of a piece of ground. Once they've raised a spinach seed crop, they cannot grow back into that ground with a spinach seed crop for at least 10 years, ideally 15 years. So you think about the need for a 10 to 15 year rotation and to separate your crop spatially because the wind will blow that pollen around. You have to have a lot of land to produce the amount of seed that's needed to supply the baby leaf industry. And this is a bottleneck in our ability to grow more seed um, with all the development pressure on the land as well. So companies are always looking for areas with the right climatic conditions and the right infrastructural support for the seed industry because it's a complicated industry. It's a high-risk industry. A lot of things can go wrong. The crops are worth a lot of money. You can make a lot of money, but you can very quickly lose a lot of money. So it's a very high-risk industry that um, really struggles with this issue of finding enough land that has the right climatic conditions that you can meet all of these requirements for high quality seed. Well, all right then, I'm a homeowner and uh, I'm, I've heard about all of this problem with spinach and I'm just going to grow my own seed and save it from year to year. Ah. <laughs> well, um, you know, for some species that, that can work really well. Um, It's an interesting phenomenon because if you, David, are a homeowner in the middle of a seed production region, like here in the Skagit Valley in northwestern Washington, we don't want you to take your spinach to flowering because your home yard might be near a field where a company and a seed grower are trying to produce a spinach seed crop. And even if you aren't planting that much, all it takes is a little bit of pollen from your home garden to blow out into a commercial seed crop. And now you have off types that aren't going to be the right genetics, which is going to impact the ability to sell that seed. So in these seed production areas, we actually do a lot of publicity to try and raise awareness among the public 
of the importance of these seed crops to the economy of the region and the importance of homeowners um, respecting the need to not let their home vegetable gardens go to flower and seed production if if that poses a risk to the seed crops. But if you're in the middle of Seattle, which is not a seed production region, you can do what you like. It's not going to be a risk to the seed production region. But we actually have a publicity effort every year, including articles in the newspaper, that highlight the value of seed production industry to this region economically um, and why it's important for everyone to be cooperative in this. Kind of like COVID-19, making sure everyone follows the appropriate Um, standards to limit the spread of diseases and and make sure everyone stays healthy. Okay, so saving my own seed to grow next year's spinach might not work out very well for me. What about cucumbers and potatoes and a variety of other crops I want to grow? I just want to grow my own seed and save it from year to year. Yeah. It's going to get better every year. (laughs) <laughs> well, it depends on what you, if you originally started with seed that was, say, what we call a hybrid, which is a, a genetic cross between two particular parent lines that have been selected by breeders, and you decide you want to hold on to that seed, when you plant that seed out the next year, it's not going to be the same as what you planted the year before, because a hybrid seed is made from specific combination of certain parents. And when you take that seed and you try planting it out, it's going to be a totally different combination of some different sets of the genetics that went into that original hybrid. And it may not be exactly what you planted that first year. It might be quite different, depending on, again, what kind of plant it is that you're growing out. So it it gets complicated. Some species are easy to do that, to save the seed and plant them out. Others, it's going to be not what you expected. Um, So... You, you might have fun experimenting with that, and you might not get what you thought you were going to get. This might explain why my wife and I crossed two plant pathologists and ended up with a mechanical <laughs> engineer. Exactly. There we go. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> but that's exactly what it is, David, um, is that you're not controlling the cross in that case, unless it's a self-pollinated species, and then you will have uh, probably the seed will produce more, closer to what you were expecting than if it was a, a cross-pollinated species. Yeah. And then on top of that, there are, a, there are groups of diseases that would actually accumulate in the seeds over the course of growing the crop for uh, for production, not not of seed, but of the harvested part of the crop. Yeah, absolutely, and that's a huge part of what I do. I have a, I have both an extension and research appointment, David, and a big part of my extension effort is to raise awareness among seed growers and seed companies and the folks that buy seed about seed-borne pathogens and the importance of buying quality seed. When you buy low-quality seed, seed that's produced by folks that may not be aware of the risks of these diseases, that's when we start to run into problems. And over and over again, when we start seeing issues developed associated with diseases, many times it comes back to folks who were unaware of these risks. And um, so the need to keep educating, the need to keep people aware of these risks is so important. And that's a big part of my extension effort as a seed pathologist. So what should the home gardener be aware of when buying seed? Buying seeds for your home garden, buy from companies that, and this, this can be hard to assess, but companies that 
hopefully are following appropriate protocols for managing diseases and are testing their seed to make sure that they're not selling infected seed. There is a, a, a growing movement of seed saving, as you know. Folks want to be able to produce their own food and save their own seed and, and develop their own varieties. Um, and sometimes that comes at the risk if you're not aware of these diseases. Um, and we see this even more so when that seed gets moved around, which, you know, seed people share seed and then they take that seed and travel somewhere with it um, in their suitcase. Um, and that can be dangerous if that seed happens to be infected. Um, just the same as, you know, COVID-19 got moved around and people weren't aware. You look, you can look at a seed and open up the packet and look at the seed and say, this looks perfectly healthy. There's no pathogens on it. But the pathogens that are on seed are usually not visible to the eye, just like COVID-19 is not always visible to the person who might be carrying it and be asymptomatic. So there's a very high risk of moving pathogens with seed if you just think that seed that's infected is going to look like it's infected. Most of the time, you're not going to be able to tell that it's infected. So be aware that um, buying poor quality seed usually means a much greater risk of moving pathogens on seed. That to me is one of the most important messages tied to seed pathology. If you are a homeowner who, you know, holds on to seed, you don't necessarily plant all your seed at once and want to hold on to seed or you harvest your own seed and want to hold on to it, make sure you store your seed in a nice, dry, cool climate. Um, if you keep seed, it's too too humid or too an environment that's too humid or, or moist, it's not going to store. It's going to start to uh, rot. Um, it's going to start to try to germinate and it won't have any shelf life. So if you are one of those who hold on to your seed, Keep it in a nice, dry, cool uh, place, and you should have um, many more years of use out of that seed. Having an understanding of where seed comes from, how it's produced, and the tremendous amount of effort that goes into producing high-quality seed. When you buy a packet of seed and you plant it out, if only 10 out of 100 seeds came up, you wouldn't be very happy. So, what happens with how do we make sure that when you plant that seed out, most of it comes up, most of it germinates, most of it will produce healthy seedlings and not just weak seedlings or seedlings that die. And that again comes back to buying quality seed and what it takes to produce high quality seed. There's so much that goes into it. And I just think it's, it's a, unfortunately a well-kept secret and something we should be sharing more widely. more information about the International Year of Plant Health, visit us at planttopiapodcast.org. Thanks for listening. Our show is produced by John Bryce. Thanks also to Mark Gleason, Jim Bradeen, Laura Isles, and Roshni Karate. I'm your host, David Godori, and you've been listening to Plantopia. Plantopia.